And let us join our hearts in prayer. Startle us this day, O God, with your word for us. And grant that our hearts, our minds, and our spirits would be focused in these moments on the word that you have for us as we carry out your will in this your world. Through Christ. Amen. About 20 years ago, while I was a very new chaplain at McAllister College in Minnesota, I sat in a room full of students in an old house on campus. I had been invited to attend this meeting by a young woman whom I had met before I moved from Wisconsin to Minnesota. Along with a couple friends, she had launched a feminist spirituality circle, all students. And when I arrived at McAllister, she invited me to come for an evening. The topic for the night focused on moments when someone they knew or they themselves had experienced abuse in relationship. And that night, we went to a land akin to the place the people of Israel went when the city of Jerusalem was devastated and they were carried off to the Babylonian exile. Many more than I anticipated knew someone who had experienced abuse, and many more in the room disclosed their own experience. There were long silences in that room that night, and that experience intensified what I heard as a calling to go to a far country, to the rough stuff, and to accompany the lonely, silence the very frightened, to a place called home. Both the Hebrew Bible and Gospel scripture readings for today begin in situations of deep distress, displacement, blindness, and the word that arises from each is a vision of homecoming, of finding one's way to the deepest source of life. The portion we read from Jeremiah is something of an aberrant text in what is in that prophetic word, a word of sorrow and tragedy. Here we have words of hope, words of comfort, words that ask the people who were at their wits' end to place their trust in God, whose initial and last word is that God loves Israel and can be relied upon to extend God's gracious love to every situation of life even the most uncertain and shakable situations, such as the situation of displacement. The promise is that they will be carried home. It is not unlike the arc of most good literature or narratives or film in our culture. It usually begins with something good, and the whole thing winds up often rough and broken. And of course, then in the end, there is a resolution. You know what I mean. Your dreams come true. You win the lottery. You ace the SATs or GREs. The thick admissions packet is stuffed in the mailbox. You meet your soulmate. You land the dream job. And off you go, quite confident, quite certain that all will be well. After all, you've worked hard, 
You've cultivated an interesting pedigree. You're a winner, at least that's what they've all told you. And so also with the people of Israel. They had been called by God to go to a land that God would prepare for them. They had journeyed from captivity in Egypt through the wilderness, and after 40 years, they landed in the land of promise. They set up shop. A succession of kings eventuated in King David, and then his son Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. The visible markers of the Davidic dynasty and the temple were assurances of God's election. But just as things were going along swimmingly, just as the movie camera swept across the shimmering land and seascapes and the viewer's eye was captured by the elegant beauty, something takes a turn for the worse. The musical score goes minor, clouds appear on the horizon, the smile furrows, something is not right. And right underfoot, Tragedy arises. The child gets sick, the mother dies, the family splits, the polar cap melts, the world comes unhinged, hurricane, tsunami, greed, and in the case of the people of Israel, Jerusalem falls. Today's reading in Jerusalem, in Jeremiah, is likely penned smack dab in the last days of Judah when Jerusalem was under siege by Babylon. I don't think we can fully imagine the tragedy that holds its grip on those people. This is not only a political defeat for the people of Israel and Judah, it is the marks of a theological defeat as well. It's a time of disbelief. It's a time of sweeping terror. It's a time when all that drew the people into relationship with God and all that they trusted came undone. Where is God? Where can we find Yahweh? Where will we sing the Lord's song? It's a dark day, an unspeakably dark time in the life of these people. And it doesn't help that up to that point in the prophecy of Jeremiah, he slams the people, denouncing their ways, blaming what is now the victim. Even his name in Hebrew, Jeremiah, has its roots in the word Jeremiah, which means thunderous denunciation, and Jeremiah certainly lived up to his name. As the Babylonians tore into the temple and the priests and the king himself, Jeremiah thundered against the excesses of those who were being overrun. You brought this on yourself. You were too interested in a little human sacrifice, recreational sex, exploiting the poor. Jeremiah calls out to them, warning them that Jerusalem would be overrun by the Babylonians, at which point the people of Israel threw Jeremiah in jail. When it did come to pass that the Babylonians showed up and ripped down the temple, ran off with the family jewels, Jeremiah pronounced it all as God's judgment. And calling it judgment was about as popular then as it would be today, especially a word spoken from a two-bit prophet like Jeremiah. God's word through the prophet came to a people in the thick of a tragedy and sent them into thousands of years of dispersal. And that tragedy arises out of shaken faith 
and shaken trust in God. The Gospel story of blind Bartimaeus drives us into another scene. And though there are many other scenes like this, particularly in Mark's Gospel, where people are on the brink of self-destruction, people who wonder if there's a way out, people who reach desperately for a cure for themselves or a family member, this story takes us to the margins, to a man who has begged in a dusty, dingy, out-of-the-way Jericho for a very long time. Certainly, being blind had its challenges. Yes, being a beggar is a tragedy. But this man, who actually is recorded in this gospel with a name that is alone quite unusual, has no companions to get him to help get Jesus' attention. Jesus is about to leave Jericho. And this man is among those in the gospel who stand at the margins, who stand in need of healing, who are overlooked, assumed outsiders, who are alone, have long since been abandoned by family. He, along with that Syrophoenician woman who called Jesus out on his chauvinism, he, along with the Gerasene demoniac whose demons were legion and who lived in a cave out of sight but not out of mind, he, along with the blind man from Bethsaida, whose world was rocked by Jesus placing spittle in his eyes and the man seeing trees walking like people. And we must not look, overlook the little children who Jesus placed in his lap, right in the midst of the shushes of the disciples. There is Bartimaeus. He's on edge. He's shouting out shrieking at the top of his God-given lungs. And the more the disciples try to silence him, the louder his shouts become. His life has been nothing but a tragedy on a crash course to nowhere. And anyone who has been in Jericho at that time in history or even today knows that there is not a future for the Bartimaeuses of then or now. And so these texts lay in deep tragedy. They take us to the most vulnerable of human conditions, beloved cities laying in heaps, human wreckage that rises out of greed, selfish desires, systems that render the infirm to the margins, the nakedness of their lives laid bare in fear, regret, sorrow, undoing. And we are not far from them, are we? We might actually find some measure of relief if someone dared to be as searingly blunt as Jeremiah. Our individual and common life holds much tragedy. There are the angry ones and the lonely ones. There are all of the world's tragedies that we have heard this fall by a stunning array of preachers here at Memorial Church. And though tragedy is where these texts begin, it doesn't end there. Because like all great academic institutions and civically engaged organizations, it is a question that disrupts what might be assumed as the unavoidable, cynical tragic. And it's so important to pay attention to the questions that emerge when bad things happen to good people or when justice seems a far cry from all that is occurring. I don't know about you, but it seems a little bit odd to me that when blind Bartimaeus emerged from the crowd, having thrown off his only possession, his cloak, and sprang forward, that Jesus asked the question, 
that seems like it would have an obvious answer. As he sees the stumbling man come close, he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And we may not realize it, but Jesus has actually posed this question in another context. Not long before, two disciples, James and John, were arguing with each other about who would be the greatest. And there was the question, what do you want me to do for you? James and John wanted guaranteed status in the coming kingdom of God. By contrast, blind Bartimaeus wants vision. He wants to be healed of his blindness. And that same question comes to us this day. It's a deal-breaker question when asked by Jesus of us, what do you want me to do for you? It's a clarifying question, and the way we answer that question exposes the truth of whether we long for power and privilege or whether our deepest longing is for sight, for vision. How do you respond to that question? How would this institution called Harvard answer Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? Because Jesus' message is not only a message for those who lived in his time, but also comes to us, who in this time as Christians may also feel as though our faith that we hold has been watered down, has been accommodated, has been privileged, and thereby dismissed as anything but life-giving power for us today. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks. And if we take the question to heart, the answer we have this day could change the course of your very life, just as it did for that blind man in Jericho that day when Jesus came to town. But most powerfully, and most assuringly, if our answer to this question is that you want nothing more than to find your way home to God, then the way is clear. When I was sitting in that room with those students at McAllister College 20 years ago, I realized one thing very clearly. They were wandering in a far land, and their courage and their support for each other and their sheer guts to name these tragedies gave them a glimpse of a homeland as they journeyed together through their heart-rending stories in that little house that evening. Unlike Bartimaeus, they were not alone. On this campus, we also face the tragic reality of the experience of sexual assault. And this tragedy keeps many among us from the promise of homecoming here at Harvard. Throughout my ministry, I've had the privilege of accompanying many survivors of trauma to this hand of God's grace. I've heard from them that they believe that college or university life would be the best years they had. And then there was the party, the approach, the intoxication of the attention, the promise of a good time that went off the rails. And the trust that this new home of a campus of a community that would emerge with joy and hope, the long-term condition of this place changes in one moment. I've heard too many tales of self-blame, both from survivors and alleged perpetrators. I've heard of the institutional denial, 
I have wondered about my role and our role as a faith community, but what has come clearly, clearly to me is that the power of Christ's transforming grace arrives when communities offer a harbor of safety and assurance that we will do everything in our power to help everyone find their place at home. I believe that the call of the gospel is to look into the staggering issues of our time, just as it was the call of the gospel in Jesus' time. And if the gospel begins with tragedy, with the realization that we cannot save ourselves, then the gospel ends with belonging and welcome. If the gospel begins with a blind beggar, it ends with a man leaping out of his skin at the chance not only to follow the healer, but to stand on his faith that healing would come. We find at our, in our homes, both our birth homes and this home called Harvard, that it can be a place of joy, a place of astonishment, a place of shelter, a room called home. This place that calls forth the fullness of our personhood, our sexuality, our intellect, our imagination, is a place that holds tragedy and is mobilized by questions that invite us into a deep and pervasive healing to all that blinds and causes us to stumble. And I imagine Jesus was not only moved, but held deep admiration for Bartimaeus, who shouted at the top of his lungs, and would not be silenced by the crowds. I imagine that Jesus was amazed by this man's unswerving clarity when he answered the question, what do you want for me to do for you? The invitation and life-giving power is not ours. It arises from brokenness made new, by new life arising from tragedy and the cross, and the astonishing new life made possible through the resurrected joy of Jesus Christ. I imagine Jesus leapt for joy when the man responded to the healing by going the way with Jesus, the way that led to the cross, the tomb, and the accompanying grace that leads us home. Thanks be to God. Amen.